Welcome tonight, as always. We're so glad that you can be here in the middle of the week as we open God's Word. Tonight, we will go to the Lord's table, and uh, we'll also have a brief time of prayer at the end. If you're joining us for the first time, we are in a series on basic discipleship, and that's the handout you want. Number four, this is number four of 21. Now, our Father, we thank you that you do hold us fast. Your son said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. You promise no one shall snatch them out of your hand, Lord Jesus, and no one shall snatch us out of the Father's hand, for you and the Father are equal, you are one. Thank you for the great security. Thank you that justice and mercy and love met at the cross that because of the completeness of the work that you accomplished for us, that we can be forgiven and clean and credited with the very righteousness of your Son. And thank you for the privilege of prayer to be able to come to you, to spend time with you, to tell you our desires, our wants, to give you thanks and praise and adoration. And so, Lord Jesus, just as the disciples said, teach us to pray. That's what we would ask you to do again tonight by the Spirit of God and the Word of God that He has given us, that He would illumine the truth, that our minds might be renewed, that we might understand prayer according to what you've revealed. And we'll give you the thanks and the praise in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, we are on topic number four. You don't have the entire handout. I just started where we're going to pick up tonight. Uh, to save a little printing, but next week, God willing, you'll have the entire handout, or not, not next week, two weeks from tonight. Next Wednesday, we'll uh, meet by family for prayer and thanksgiving, so we won't be meeting here. But two weeks from tonight, especially for those who are joining us live streaming, uh, we will be back and we'll complete this handout. We have six major objectives. One, we're understanding the nature of prayer, trying to ascertain the answer to the question, does God answer the prayer of an unsaved man? We studied that. We looked at four reasons as to why we should pray. We'll unfold those a little bit further tonight. Uh, we're going to further look tonight at the different kinds of prayer that are looked at in Scripture. And then next time, common hindrances to prayer, some of the mechanics of prayer, and then some critical verses. So first we asked... Uh, what, what is prayer? What really is prayer? And simply defined, it's uh, talking with God. It's a conversation between two people who love each other. Then we spoke to the fact that prayer is the means that God has given us for appropriating his resources. And then we asked and answered the question, who can pray? And certainly those who belong to Christ can pray. And we did indeed look at the possibility that God can certainly answer the prayer of an unsaved man. Though all the promises in Scripture are given to those who have met Christ, we saw one clear, crisp, biblical example where God answered the prayer of a non-believer. Though this non-believer was certainly responding to everything that he knew how to respond, but he hadn't yet been saved, according to the Scripture, in, with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. We saw that those who pray must pray in the name of Jesus, that this is not some magical formula but it's through Christ that we are given our righteousness. Uh, we saw, too, that those who pray must pray with a clean heart, that our heart needs to be clean 
with God and with each other. And so we saw those who pray must have a forgiving spirit. And then we came to the third question as well last time, why are we to pray? And God gives us many motivations for prayer. And when we understand these motivations through the renewing of our mind, it encourages us to pray. And that's where we are in your handout. Last time we did look at, we should pray because God is glorified through prayer. Jesus made this incredible statement here on your first page of your handout, John 15, 7 and 8. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So indeed, it is a conditional prayer. We need to be in sync with the Lord. We call that abiding in Christ, obeying him. Um, And his word needs to be in us. You uh, pray according to the word of God, the truth that God has revealed. And when those two things are real, then you will ask what God wants, and he'll answer it, and he's glorified by that. Because fruit is produced, his will is unfolded, and an unbelieving world sees indeed that God is real. We should pray because God commands us to pray. And we looked at last time, Luke 18.1, he was telling them a parable to show them at all times that they ought to pray and not to lose heart. And certainly this does not mean that we're in our prayer closet 24-7 on our knees with our heads bowed and eyes closed, but we are in a spirit of prayer. And so Paul can say, pray without ceasing. And so prayer is not just using informing words with your lips and your tongue. It's an attitude of the heart. And in that sense, we ought to always be in prayer. We saw sometimes people lose heart because it's hard work. And Paul spoke of Epaphras, who always labored earnestly in prayer. It's hard work sometimes simply because there's a spiritual battle that is unfolding, and Satan does not want you to pray. And so Jesus asked a penetrating question as we came to the end of our time last time. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And remember that statement in Luke 18 falls in a wider pericope of Scripture. And he's been dealing with the end times, and he's been unfolding the days of Noah and the days of Lot, the days of Noah, which were days of moral impropriety and lawlessness, and the days of Lot that were days of perversion. And Jesus said that would mark the last days. And indeed, 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 3, in many ways, are commentaries increasingly on the day in which we live. And as we approach the end of the age, the Lord said that men's hearts would grow cold. They would become indifferent. They would become apathetic. And so for that reason, it's an important question because we can be influenced by the world around us. One of the marks of the church at the end of time is it will be apathetic and lukewarm, and it will foster apostasy after the church is removed. And so with a lukewarm, apathetic church... You're not impacting the society, and the society corrupts even more. And unless we're walking in the center of God's will, then we become corrupted by the culture. And Jesus asks the question, will the Son of Man find faith when he returns? So that brings us to point C there in our outline. We're breaking new material now. We should pray because God delights in the prayer of the righteous. So point number one here, while prayer at times can be hard work, it can also be delightful and refreshing and encouraging for us, and it can be pleasing to God, for he said in Proverbs 15, 8, the sacrifice of the wicked 
is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. I, I find it fascinating that he puts those two things in the same verse. Because, of course, a, a sacrifice, and he's speaking in the context of the Old Testament sacrificial system. You can go through all the mechanics of offering sacrifices to God, but if your heart is not right, it means nothing to him. The same breath, because prayer in one sense is a form of worship and sacrifice. As the writer of the Hebrews expounds in the final chapter of that book. And so uh, it is hard work. It's pleasing to the Lord when our heart is right. The godly man or woman delights God with their prayer, which is why the Lord could tell the Samaritan woman in John 4.23, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Why don't you turn there for a moment? Let's go to John chapter 4. It's an important chapter. Remember, on that occasion, he was dealing with a Samaritan woman. And Samaritans, if you remember, the uh, kingdom of Israel originally was all called Israel, formed 12 tribes, but because of uh, apostasy that came, the 10 northern tribes split off, and they became known as Israel. And that can become a little confusing at times because you think, oh, Israel, that's all 12 tribes. Well, it is at one point, and sometimes even God collectively refers to all 12 tribes after they've divided as Israel because they're all descendants of a man named Yitzrael, Jacob, whom God renamed. The 10 northern tribes broke off, had a new capital called Samaria. The two southern tribes, named after the larger of the two, had as their capital the place that God deemed they should worship, Jerusalem. If you remember, God sent prophets, and he warned them, you better repent, or I'm going to judge you. And he brought the Assyrians down from the north and carried away the ten northern tribes. Some of the people were left. They were left for the Assyrians to intermarry. And so you had these Jews and these Gentiles who married, and they became known as half-breeds, Samaritans. And they were despised by the Jewish people. And so with time, the animosity between a Jew and a Samaritan increased and grew. And eventually, the capital of the northern kingdom, Samaria, the whole province was named after it, Samaria. And so Jesus went through Samaria, a province that you'll see on any first century map. And uh, eventually, they had their own temple. Uh, there came a time when, you're not coming to our temple. You're not coming to Jerusalem. You, you're, you're apostates. You, you, to marry a Gentile in a Jew's mind was to marry into a pagan religion. Because most Gentiles, as a general rule, not exclusively, Acts 10 with Cornelius would be an exception, were just raw pagans. You're not coming to our temple. You're not coming here. So with... About 400 years before Christ, Alexander the Great, whom, of course, the prophet Daniel prophesied of, gave them permission to build their own temple. A couple hundred years later, it was destroyed, and so they get into this discussion with Jesus, or this woman does. Look at Acts, uh, John 4, verse 20. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, and you people say in Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. By the way, that argument has not changed. I went to Mount Gerizim. I went to Israel early on one of my trips because there are some places that are very difficult to get to, and you don't want to take the whole tour bus there because to get to one spot, you could have seen six others in the course of a day. Um, 
And I went a little bit early to make sure everything was in sync. And so I went to Mount Gerizim and I met this gentleman who said he was the high priest of the Samaritans. And I went to the Samaritan Museum and they trace his line down and he said, I'm the one. Of course, I was speaking through his grandson and I saw some faults in the chart that I pointed out to him, which maybe not was not the right thing to do in the museum. But I said, well, actually, that guy's age is wrong over here. And he said, what do you mean? And we looked at, oh, yeah, I guess it is. And this was one of their major displays. But lay all that aside, they still worship in Mount Gerizim. In fact, a lot of people in Israel will go into Samaria once a year around Passover because the Samaritans still take animals and offer them in a sacrificial way, and the Jewish people who don't have a temple want to see how they do it. So it's kind of interesting. So which place are we worshiping? Jesus said, woman, that was not discourteous, as you know. Believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In other words, you're in this discussion, Mount Gerizim or Mount Moriah, where Jerusalem is. Which place? And Jesus said, well, the argument is somewhat irrelevant, though I have the right answer because I'm a Jew, our Savior is a Jew. Salvation is from the Jew. The Scripture is written by the Jew. And so what the Jews said was authoritative. But the argument that you're presenting to me is going to be irrelevant because it's not going to be an issue of place. Under the New Deal, the New Covenant, the New Testament, covenant or testament or synonyms, we don't always think of those words in that way, but that's how they're presented in the Bible. You'll worship in spirit and in truth. And as we'll see tonight, that's how we're to pray, in spirit and in truth. Our spirit needs to be made alive. So in one sense, this is a good thing. Why does the Father seek those who worship him in spirit and truth? Does he have some ego that needs to be stroked? Of course not. God doesn't need anything. We don't, we don't add anything to God when we worship God. He's totally complete. We don't do anything for God like he is lacking He's totally complete. But his desire for us to worship him in spirit and truth is because he desires people to be saved, to be born again under the new deal. Because unless you worship in spirit and truth, it means you're not born again. And if you're not born again, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. And for those of us who are born again, it's important that our spirit and some... Um, some of the English texts will capitalize spirit. Some will put it in a lower case, in spirit and in truth. And in one sense, they're both right, because the only way for your spirit to worship God is for your inner man, your new man, as Paul says, has been made alive. But in our inner person, we, we need to make sure the Holy Spirit is filling us. And only then. And so there's two extremes. You can worship in truth but not in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you have kind of a dead, cold formalism. And you can pray with a dead, formal, cold, you know, heart. On the other hand, you can, quote-unquote, worship in spirit, but not be guided by the Word of God, and you have fanaticism. So God is to be approached accordingly, based on the revelation of Scripture, by someone who's been regenerated by the Spirit, 
and who is infilled with the Spirit. So back here to our handout for a second. I'm running down a side road. I didn't plan to go down. Prayer and worship are not merely, uh, well, number three, the Lord Jesus had just told this lady, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. To underscore that it is not the location that makes worship authentic. Prayer and worship are not merely an external act that you can accomplish by going to a place. It is an issue of the heart that the Father seeks. Clearly, God does not delight in everyone's prayer, for Jesus said on another occasion, he's quoting Isaiah 29, 13, as recorded in Matthew 15, 8, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. So they're mouthing the prayers, but their hearts are a million miles away. Prayer is first and foremost an experience of the heart that can only come from a person who is born again and who is in fellowship with God, for it is this kind of prayer that delights God's heart. So it's important that we understand that we should pray because God delights in the prayer of the righteous. D, we should pray because prayer changes things. It changes things. In light of the fact that God is sovereign over everything in the universe and that he ultimately works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11, someone might ask, then why should we pray? I mean, if God is sovereign, he's ultimately going to fulfill everything that he wants to fulfill. Why should we pray? It's a fair question. The simplest answer is that God who created us in his image as free moral agents has ordained both the ends and the means to accomplish his work. For example, he has ordained from Romans 10, 13, quoting, of course, the prophet Joel, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I meant to put that in blue, all scriptures in blue, I'll fix that. But he also ordained that his message go out through Christians sharing it. So Romans 10, you know, he talks about his Jewish brethren who have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with righteousness. And of course, uh, he gives the promise, whoever will call on the name of the Lord can be saved, but how can they call upon him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless someone goes and tells them? Romans 10, 14. So God has a means and he has an end. And he brings the two together. Our God is over all. And so he has determined what will happen as well as the means that will make it happen. What he has determined to happen. Let me read that again. Our God is over all. And so he has determined what will happen as well as the means that will make it happen. What he has determined to happen. (laughs) All right. Follow that. That's important. He has a means, but he has an end to that means. And so you see this tension between sovereignty and responsibility coming together repeatedly in the Scripture. For instance, um, or number five, and so in the case of prayer, we know that God has ordained that he will make certain things happen in response to our intercession. Now, I should say parenthetically, he'll make some things happen even if we don't pray. So John Wesley would often say, God does nothing apart from prayer. And that's true most of the time, but it's not entirely true. Because there's some things God's going to do, whether anyone ever prays about it or not. He's going to resurrect the dead someday. He's going to raise up the righteous and the unrighteous. It has nothing to do with our prayer. He's ordained it. He's going to do it, not in response to our prayer, but because he's dictated it. But so much of what God wants to accomplish... 
he wants to do through the prayer of his people in response to our intercession, which is why God commands us to pray because prayer changes things. For instance, prayer can make us strong and keep us from sin, which is why Jesus said in Matthew 26, 41, remember there in Gethsemane, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We know in the days of King Ahab, we just did a series on this, remember, with Elijah, that God ordained a a drought as a judgment on the nation to bring about repentance. A drought both whose start and end were ordained by God. But from the same narrative, as well as in James chapter 5, we also know that the start and the end of the drought occurred as a result of Elijah's prayer. So God ordained it to happen, But the means by which he pulled it off was through prayer. Again, divine sovereignty, human responsibility coming together. So James summarizes those many, many chapters in 1 Kings. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So in the case of the drought, it was ordained by God to happen, and yet it happened because Elijah prayed for it to happen. Both God's sovereign determination and the prayers of Elijah brought about the start and the end to the drought because God ordained it to happen, and he ordained it would be accomplished through the prayers of Elijah. Please understand, it is not that prayer changes God's mind. For in the case of Elijah the prophet, he was not giving new information, nor was he presenting to God something that God had not anticipated. Jesus told us, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 8. And so our prayer does not alter God's sovereign plan simply on our say-so, but prayer nonetheless does change things. And so it's in the context and reference to Elijah's prayer that God can promise from James 5, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. While we may not know God's eternal sovereign plan in all its details, but we do know that he works through prayer and answers prayer. So that's part of why you pray like you worship, and one aspect of prayer is worship in spirit and in truth. Why? Because as you study the truth of God's Word, you discover what it is that God is asking us to go to Him with, and the kinds of things that He really wants us to claim. But if we're just totally ignorant of the Scripture, then we really can't pray accordingly. We know that we pray that as we pray according to His will, He says yes to our requests. And this is one of our top 100 verses you'll get some weeks down the line. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the request that we've asked from him. I mean, that's a rock-solid promise. If you know something over here is definitively the will of God, when you bring that to your father, assuming you're not somehow... um, creating a blockage where God's not going to answer your prayer, and we'll discuss that further next time. We've already hit on it some. You know it's the will of God, then you know He's heard you. Heard you in that, you know, it's not like, well, um, you know, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Like, oh, I didn't hear that. Did you hear that? The Holy Spirit, no, I didn't hear it. Did you hear it, Jesus? No, I didn't hear it. That's not what He means, of course, when He says He doesn't hear it. It means he doesn't hear in a responsive way. 
It's kind of like their, their sins and the lawless needs, I will remember no more. Oh, I don't remember that. Did you remember when he murdered those? Ten? I don't remember that. You remember? No, he doesn't hold it against you. It's not like God has a case of divine amnesia, obviously. So when we know it's the will of God, we know he hears us, and if he's heard us, then we know that we have the request that we've asked from him. Boy, that's a great promise. That's one to camp on. Even when we are uncertain of God's will, the Spirit promises to intercede on our behalf, translating our prayers into God's will. If you want to study this, I have a whole sermon just on these couple of verses in my series in Romans. But let's read Romans 8, 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit intercedes for our groanings with two too deep for words. So sometimes we do not know what to pray or how to pray. But God in our weakness helps us through the Holy Spirit. The intercessory ministry of the Spirit in us through the one intercessor with the Father, the Lord Jesus, is a wonderful and assuring picture of how our prayers can be answered. You know, sometimes I'm in a situation I don't know to pray. I go into a hospital room and this person is old, they're tired, their their, the children are saying, please pray, Pastor Carl, that God would somehow heal our mom. And then the mom had told me two weeks before, please pray, Pastor Carl, that God would take me home. You know, and you're in this, this happened to me in a hospital room. And I knew what she wanted, I knew what the kids wanted. You don't want to see your mom die. You want around as long as she could be. But I didn't know how to pray as I should. But even when I don't know how to pray as I ought, God intercedes. I was in a situation today with one of my sons. He uh, went to the Marine Corps. Uh, He's been up there in Quantico at Officer Candidate School. And, of course, when when he... uh, when he signed up, uh, Colonel Pete, up there in the uh, nosebleed section, uh, it's COVID-free up there. That's why he sits up there. Uh, he, um, he was clerking for a federal judge, and, you know, the guy who recruited him and said, yeah, you know, Jameson, as soon as you're done with OCS, you go right back to that clerkship, and then you'll go, and when you're done with that, you'll go to the basic school. So Jameson's telling me this, and I said, I don't know, Jameson. <laughs> I said, it doesn't always work that way. It's like these guys who go to Paris Island, they say, we've got this beautiful 18-hole golf course over here, and it's not always what they think, is it? Not in the Marine Corps. And that's why, uh, well, I won't say that. I was, well, I will say it. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, they say they join the Army and they join the Air Force, but you become a Marine. That, that's what the, the, all the Marines said amen, and all the other guys, <laughs> So I, I just didn't really know how to pray as odd. I said, Lord, I can see all these benefits if somehow you moved the king's heart and gave him favor and let him finish his federal clerkship. They, these federal clerkships are very, very challenging and difficult to get. On the other hand, I could see the benefit if he just went right across the street and went through TBS. So I got on my knees in my study today, and I said, Lord, I don't know how to pray. But I thank you that the Spirit in me intercedes with groanings. It has nothing to do with speaking in tongues, the charismatic wackos. I mean, please. The groanings go back to the Spirit of God. He is the one who is interceding for us. 
through the Son to the Father. And even when we don't know how to pray as we ought, He translates our prayers according to the will of God. It's a beautiful thing. I have a whole sermon on it. When we do not, number 19, when we do not know how to pray exactly as you should, God the Holy Spirit makes intercessions for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. And so while Jesus Christ is our intercessor in the court of heaven, God the Holy Spirit is our intercessor in the theater of our hearts. In summary, we should pray because God is glorified through prayer. God commands us to pray. God delights in the prayer of the righteous, and we should pray because prayer truly changes things. To live our lives in a spirit of prayer is to live our lives in the presence of God under his authority, all the while being able to enjoy God and allowing all the glory and honor to go to him who is worthy. It's just a, it's just a great privilege that God gives us. You know, and when your heart is in sync with the Lord and it's not a million miles away, as people worship me with their lips, their hearts down the street, you just, you're in conversation with God all the time and you're enjoying him. And that's what he really has. So what should be included in prayer? Well, while it is impossible to tightly categorize prayer, some people say acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, and those are good, you know, little devices to help us to remember the different kinds of prayer. But while it's impossible, and they, they will sometimes make that like the hard line order where you start and praise, and then you see what a sinner you are, and you go to confession, and then you thank God, and then you supplicate, and... While it's impossible to tightly categorize prayer or to dictate a particular order in the kind of prayer we should exercise, because you'll find many different kinds of examples in Scripture that go against, you know, the little formulas sometimes we devise. Prayer can be summarized basically into five major categories. One, we should pray with confession. We should pray with confession. When God saves us, he credits to our person Christ's righteousness giving us a new status before the Lord. Romans 5.1, right? Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's the peace of God that Philippians speaks of. You can have peace with God without knowing the peace of God because you're out of fellowship with God or your mind is not in sync with God's truth. And so the circumstances are controlling you instead of God's spirit based on his word. But when you're saved, you get peace with God. Why? Because before you're saved, once you've reached that point of accountability, Romans 5 describes us as enemies. For while we're enemies... God reconciled, as Paul will say, through the death of his son. He described us by nature in Ephesians 2 as children of wrath. So we have peace with God, and God justifies us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it's a verse every Christian should know. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He, the Father, made him the Son who had never sinned, who was sinless, to be sin on our behalf as he hung there on Golgotha. The sin of all time was laid on him. He bore our sin in his body on the cross. Why? So an exchange could take place so that we might become, because we weren't before, the righteousness of God. That word righteousness is the same word that is translated justified as a verb. That's a noun form. 
so that we could become the righteousness of God in, in Christ. So justification is not just being pardoned. You can be pardoned and not be forgiven. A judge can pardon you, but he has no power to forgive you. Nor is it just forgiveness. God doesn't just forgive us when he saves us. He justifies us. He wipes the slate clean, but he does more than that. Justification is not simply just as if you'd never sinned. That's an aspect of it, but it would probably be better stated just as if you had always obeyed. He not only wipes the slate clean, he credits you with Christ's righteousness. God gives us the righteousness of God in Christ. That's how he sees you. That's why we're all called saints in the New Testament. Hagaioi, holy ones, sometimes we, we translate it. So he credits to our person Christ's righteousness. So two, when God saves us, he not only wipes the slate clean, but he also credits to our account Christ's perfection, calling us holy ones. However, as justified saints, as we're called, for instance, in many introductory letters to the New Testament, Romans 1, 7 noted here, God still calls us to walk in holiness. That's called sanctification, right? So we're saved from the penalty of sin. These are in broad sweeps because the word sanctified can be used in a past tense like in a future tense. But in the broad sweep of things, justification is being saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is that process where you're being saved from the power of sin. And in glorification, the two come together where God will forever make you holy. He doesn't make us holy. He declares us holy. He imputes, credits Christ's righteousness to us at justification. But at glorification, God makes us holy. We no longer have a sin nature. We're just like the Lord Jesus at that point. So however, as justified saints, God still calls us to walk in holiness. And when we fail in our practice to live out our new position, it's essential that we confess any known sin to God in prayer. And so most of you, especially if you were here in session number two in basic discipleship, 1 John 1, 9 contextually is not a salvation verse. It is written to saved people. If we confess our sins, he, God, is both faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no set order to the kind of prayers we may offer God. Sometimes we might first go to God with confession of known sin, well, other times we might begin our prayers with praise, but then in the process, our sinful hearts are revealed, changing uh, over to a prayer of confession, changing our prayer to a prayer of confession. Um, King David asks this question, that little trilogy of Psalms, right? Psalm 22, 23, and 24. Psalm 22 is a prophetic psalm of the cross of Christ, the, the Savior's cross. And quoted in that psalm or is found in the New Testament in reference to the Lord Jesus. Psalm 23, it's the shepherd's crook. Psalm 24, the, the shepherd's crown. And it speaks of that future time when Messiah will rule and reign. But in the first part, King David asks the question, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. So we should pray with confession, clean hands, clean heart. 
because God is holy, and even those of us who have been declared holy on the basis of grace through faith, he then expects us now to walk in holiness. He wants our practice to begin to fall in line with the new position he's given us. B, we should pray with thanksgiving. The Bible commands us in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. In the New Testament, there are repeated admonitions to give thanks to God, and so thanksgiving is always to be a part of our prayers. In similar fashion, the Apostle Paul tells the Philippians, Philippians 4.6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That thankfulness should be a regular part of our prayer life is also underscored in Paul's first letter to Timothy when he makes this statement in 1 Timothy 2.1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. In life, there will always be those things that we can complain about. But if we believe in God's providence working everything together for good, then we will find our hearts filled with thanksgiving. It's ultimately, when you take all the air out of the balloon, it's a faith issue. Now, Romans 8.28 is not a wholesale promise. A prayer of thanksgiving, point six there, not only expresses gratitude, but faith or trust that God has everything under his sovereign control. Look at Romans 8:28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, if you look here in the New American Standard, because they're, again, trying to make it linguistically smooth, the word called looks like a verb, doesn't it? But it's not. It's actually a noun, and so the New King James renders it correctly, to those who are the called according to his purpose. In other words, he's, he's isolating a particular group of people who are called the called. If you've been saved, you're a member of the called. And so Romans 8.28 doesn't apply to everybody. Oh, you know, everything has a way of working out for good, people say. Raw pagans have told me statements like that using different phrases to communicate it. No, God says for those who are the called, he works everything together for good. Why? Because he has a purpose in mind. Even the hard things in life are designed by God to shape us into the image of Christ as he goes on in the next verse, Romans 8, 29, to expound. So when we express thanksgiving to God, we are not only acknowledging our gratitude to him, but we are acknowledging that he is in charge and that without faith, it's impossible to please him. What's faith? Faith is believing what God said. And God revealed he works everything together for good. So when that guy cuts you off in traffic, you say, thank you, Lord. You're sovereign. You don't start screaming at him. When you get a flat tire, thank you, Lord. You're sovereign. You work everything together for good. Whatever it is, if you really believe in the providence of God that it extends to every detail of life, then the things that control people and aggravate people and cause them to grumble can actually cause us to praise Him. And sometimes, you know, it's after the fact and you see, wow, look what God did in that setting. It's not what we expected. 
My wife and I were in a restaurant one time, and this little gal, she just messed everything up. I, I don't know if she was new or what she was, but she couldn't get on first base with anything. I mean, everything was all balled up. But by God's grace, we responded to her in a kind way. And by the time we were about to leave that restaurant, that woman was ready to receive Christ. God just orchestrated the circumstances. And that has happened to us, I don't know how many, dozens of times. And my wife will often say, it really wasn't about eating in this restaurant, was it? I said, no, it really wasn't. See, God is working everything together for good. And when we say, God, I thank you, not just for the, what we consider the blessings, but the trials of life, we are really giving affirmation to that truth. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. We should pray with worship. A prayer of worship is similar to the prayer of thanksgiving, with the difference being that adoration focuses on who God is, while prayers of thanksgiving focus on what God has done. And the prayer pattern, often called the Lord's Prayer, that the Lord Jesus gave to all of his disciples, he instructs us to begin with a focus of worship. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And you could argue, some people, I, one guy got mad at me once, there was, we had this, uh, um, this Marine colonel who was in our church many years ago, he became a, a general, General Alice became the head of the Secret Service for uh, President Trump, and he and his wife, who I was privileged to, uh, to marry, would bring this uh, woman with them that was slightly um, challenged mentally. And they just loved her, and nobody else, you know, just could care less about her. They'd pick her up week after week for like the three years he had a tour here. And... Uh, she said to me, like, week after week, why don't we ever say the Lord's Prayer? Meaning, our Father who art in heaven. And finally, General Alice came up to me. He said, Pastor Carl, this is our last Sunday here with her. She's getting ready to move. And so I said, our Father who art in heaven, in the prayer, the pastoral prayer that morning. Well, someone came up to me. Jesus didn't say to do that. Pray then in this way. Well, if you look in the parallel account, he also said, pray with these words. And how could you ever go wrong with quoting Scripture, huh? You could never go wrong with quoting Scripture. But as much as anything, he's teaching us how to pray. It's in response to a question that they ask. So it's not wrong to say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, and so on. Nothing wrong with that. But as much as anything, he's teaching us and giving us some structure as to the kinds of ways we approach God and the kinds of things we ask for. You will often discover that as you're focused on who God is, that when you focus on who God is, that your heart will not only be filled with praise, but that you will be able to approach God with a heart of belief for the requests that you've asked of him. 
I mean, think about that. We see the disciples first focusing on God's character on the occasion when their lives had been threatened by the religious officials in Jerusalem. Turn there for a second, Acts chapter 4. Let's go there, Acts chapter 4. The book of Acts, we were in it last Sunday, if you were with us, covers 30 years of church history. And it is divided based on a word of prophecy that Jesus gave in Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 is a, is a prophecy. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. They were. That's Acts 1 through 7. You're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. Yep, persecution comes. We're all scattered, just as Jesus predicted. That's Acts 8 through 13. You're going to be my witnesses to the remotest part of the earth. Third part of the prophecy, that's the record of Acts 13 through 28. So in Acts 4, of course, they're preaching the gospel, and there's some people who are somewhat upset with them. And um, look at verse 19, Peter and John answered and said to these religious officials, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. I mean, they just did a miracle. It's recorded in the third chapter. For the man who was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed, when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O oh Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You know, they're, they're just focusing on the greatness of God and how magnificent he is. They open their prayer with really who is God and what is he like? Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our fa father David, your servant said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Messiah. You see the change in typeset? That tells you what? It's an Old Testament quotation. And if you go out into the margin and say, oh yeah, that's Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is one of the great messianic psalms of the Old Testament. How the Messiah is sovereign and he is going to rule and reign. And while it may seem like man is winning... One of these days, that's all going to end. And people are going to see the sovereign rule of the Messiah. It's a, it's a messianic psalm that describes the second coming of the Messiah. And so they're quoting the scripture. They're, they're, they're not only acknowledging how great God is, but how he's in control. And while the Gentiles rage, God is over it all. For truly in this city, look how much his providence extends. For in this city, they're in Jerusalem. They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. People say, someone called on the Bible line on Tuesday and they said, I heard this sermon in 1994 that you said we all crucified Christ. What did you mean by that? And I said, well, on the one hand, the Jews crucified Christ. Of course, the Roman Catholics from about the 12th century on have accused them of deicide. 
that they murdered God. And they hold them responsible. And Pope Paul VI wrote a document, an encyclical letter, really railing on them. It was more anti-Semitic, and it certainly was not accurate biblically. Um, the Jews did crucify Christ, but so did the Romans. They put the nails to his hands and feet, and so did you and I, because it was our hard hearts that were the hammers and our nails that were, and the nails were our sins. He was pierced through for our iniquity. He was crushed for our well-being, and God crucified Christ. God was pleased, the prophet said, to allow the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. And God's just being reminded by his apostles, Lord, what happened in this city? It was according to your predestined will. You orchestrated it. And so now with that said about God and all his greatness, look at verse 29. Here's the point. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bond servants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, God said, amen. The place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Now go back to your handout before we get too far afield here. We see the disciples, number four, first focusing on God's character on the occasion when their lives had been threatened by their religious officials in Jerusalem. They began their prayer by first praising God as sustainer over all the creation, as one who's sovereign over rulers, and the one who supervises the events of the world. Then, after they take the time to remember who God is, then and only then are they able to bring their requests, believing him to answer. When you pray, we need to get our prayers into perspective by not just asking God for our needs, but praising God for who he is, all right? We should pray with supplication. Let's go there. We should pray with supplication. The Hebrew and Greek words, and you'll find this word supplication in both sides of the Bible, most often translated supplication, and the Bible literally means a request or petition. And so supplication is asking God for something like our daily bread needs, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Give us the day uh, the money for the electric bill. Give us this day whatever it is. Unlike an intercessory prayer, which is praying on behalf of others, the prayer of supplication is generally a request for the person praying. The Bible includes many prayers of supplication, especially in the Psalms, as God's people ask for mercy, for God's leading, for his deliverance from enemies and from persecution and so on. I just started looking at a few places in the Psalms. I said, that's long enough, Psalm 7. We could go through the whole book and so much that they supplicate for. Earlier in this session, we studied how Jesus told us not to give up praying for what we need. Remember the widow, don't lose heart and praying. And James 4, 2 reminds us that often we do not have what we need for the simple reason we've never asked. And so Paul told the Philippians that essential to having the peace of God, which passes all understanding, that will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, are prayers of thanksgiving and supplication. Paul told the Philippians that essential to having the peace of God, now, again, this is not peace with God, but the peace of God is, again, 
prayer with supplication. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, you start laying your requests before God and at the same time thanking him for whatever circumstances you're in that might elicit that prayer request to him, that's when real peace comes. You unburden your heart, but you unburden your heart with thanksgiving. The two need to go together. God loves and cares about our needs, which is why he invites us to ask. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 7, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Then we should pray with intercession. Intercessory prayer is the act of praying on behalf of another person. Many times our prayers include requests for others as we intercede for them, just as Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. You know what Jesus is doing right now? He's praying for you. That's what the Bible reminds us, not just in the book of Hebrews, but in the Revelation. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. The whole of Christ's high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 is a prayer on behalf of his disciples and for all believers to come. It's for us, not just for them, but for those who would believe through them, John elucidates. Paul reminds us in this ministry for Jesus of Jesus for us in Romans chapter 8. He asks the question, what shall then we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, there's a prayer promise to think about. If God could do the harder, he could give his only son for you. He can certainly do the easier, the things that we need. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? These rhetorical questions, you know, no one. God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. So because of Jesus' intercessory ministry, one intercessor between God and man, right, 1 Timothy 2, we can now, by both example and command, intercede in prayer on behalf of other Christians and for those who are lost, asking for God's will to be done. A good example of intercessory prayer is seen in Daniel 9. I have a whole sermon just on the prayer of Daniel. It's such a powerful prayer, and if you've not studied it, um, read that chapter, and if it would be of help to you, the message is online at searchthescriptures.org. A good example of intercessory prayer is seen in Daniel 9 as Daniel intercedes for Israel according to the revealed will of God. That's verse 2. Hey, 70 years are going to be up, and you said you're going to do this, God, and... So he's praying according to Scripture. He's praying in the spirit of fervency, of humility, giving you some of the text, remembering God's attributes and God's glory. Well, intercessory prayer can have many expressions. Many times, like Daniel did, we come to God on behalf of others, recognizing our own shortcomings while seeking for God's will to be done. So when you intercede for other people, it's not like you're a perfect person. We're all sinners, Again, we come in Jesus' name. We come in his righteousness that's been imputed to us. We come holding on, clinging on to no sin in our heart, but we can pray for others. That's the great, great privilege. Sadly, in recent decades, some evangelical Christians have made those who are 
committed to intercessory prayer to a class of super-Christians, as I call them, when in reality all Christians are called to be involved in intercessory prayer. Clearly in Acts 12, when Peter was imprisoned, he did not limit his need for a prayer to a special class of people, but asked the whole church to pray, remember? The whole church is praying in that house for Peter who's in prison. It's a great chapter of Scripture. If you're new to the Bible, you will love that chapter when, you know, finally God brings an answer and Peter's knocking at the door and it's not Peter, it must be his angel, you know. (laughs) What were they praying for? They were praying for Peter to be released from prison. But the whole church was doing that. Likewise, Paul is asking others to pray for him. Did not limit his request to those with some special calling, but invited the whole church at Coloss, Colossians 4, 3 and 4. He asked for two things. Pray for me, all of you there in Colossians. One, that God would give me an open door to share the gospel, and two, that when I get that opportunity that somehow I could make it clear. Paul asking for prayer to make the gospel clear, the greatest theologian apart from Jesus who's ever walked on the earth. Yeah. Because it's one thing to have it in your head. It's another thing to be able to speak it with clarity on your lips. And he needed God's grace to do that. It's all by grace. The idea that intercession is the privilege and calling of only some has no biblical foundation, and it often leads to a sense of pride and superiority. It is a great thing when we pray for others and when we pray for ourselves. All right. Let's let's leave it there, and we'll pick it up here next time. I just didn't have time to get all the typos out. I'm sorry for the few that are in there, but in the final copy, by God's grace, you'll have a typo-free copy. What we're doing here is... uh, This is a discovery class we've been teaching. I've been teaching it for 40 years in one form or another, and and I gave it to some men in our church to do, and I gave them the broad strokes, and I said, listen, I want you to listen to the messages over and over and over again because I want you to express these key thoughts. When I give the text, here's the key thoughts I want you to share. So now I'm just kind of writing out those key thoughts so that Anybody could teach the material. It's, it's, uh, hopefully, it will be very transferable. But what we're talking about here, these things, these are like the bedrock truths that every Christian needs to know and that they need to teach their children and grandchildren and people that God would let them disciple. Now, our Father, we thank you that we can come to your table tonight. You told us that we are to remember you, Lord Jesus, at this table. And you reminded us that we don't come with dirty hearts, but you said a man is to examine himself, that he not participate in an unworthy fashion. And so with King David of old, we pray, search us, O God, see if there be any wicked way in us. Lead us in the way everlasting. We know it would be awful, Father, to participate by taking these elements that symbolize the price that has been paid, these elements that symbolize that you've called us to a new life in Christ, while at the same time holding on, clinging on to unconfessed, unrepentant sin. But we thank you because 
Those of us who have met you in salvation, when there's failure in our lives, you promise that when we confess our sin, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as we hold the bread in our hands before we eat it together, Father, examine each one of us that we might be clear and clean, both with you and horizontally with people that we interact with. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hold the bread in your hand, and then we'll eat it together as a symbol of our unity in Christ. said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. After he had distributed the bread, he took a cup. He said, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. That's what we were thinking about tonight, the new deal, the new, the new diatheke, the new testament. That we are able to experience something that no Old Testament Jew could ever know. Jesus said of John, there was never a man born of a woman greater than John. But the person who's least in the kingdom is greater than John. Because John had his head cut off before the fulfillment of the new covenant. But we who live on this side of Pentecost are recipients of the new covenant. It was purchased at the price of his blood. And we remember you, Lord Jesus, for that at your table tonight. Thank you for this cup, a symbol of your precious, sinless, holy blood that was shed there at Golgotha as a complete and eternal payment for our sin. Thank you because of your willingness to do this, that your Father has imputed to us your very righteousness and has placed in us the promise of the Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are our helper and that you come alongside. You renew our minds through the word you inspired and give us the grace to live a holy life. Help us to do that more passionately and more consistently in Jesus' name. This is the cup of the Lord. Take and drink. Let's uh, bow in prayer, shall we? Maybe you'd like to slide to your knees where you are. Ladies, I don't expect that. Men, if you still have good knees left, feel free to go to your knees. And we're going to go to the Lord in prayer tonight and just for a few minutes, and we're going to agree together on some very important things that concern the kingdom of God and his people. Our Father, we thank you for these days of COVID. 
Again, you work everything together for good, that nothing happens apart from your providence. We thank you, our Father, that you have protected our people. I know of none that have died from this disease, and we are grateful for that. But we know that while you have not promised freedom from death, you have promised freedom from the fear of death. And we're grateful for that, knowing our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We think of our nation tonight, and the sin is great. We have a party that sanctions murder right up until the day before a baby is born. They sanction perversion, transgenderism, homosexuality. They sanction through their support of Iran a hatred against Israel. And they have plans against your people to steal our religious freedoms. God, there are so many naive evangelicals who don't know what is up. But we thank you that you do. We lay our nation before you. You see their threats. But we are so grateful that you rule and reign. A day will come when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. We long for that day. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that when we come to this table, that we remember not just what you've done, for you said as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming your death until you come again. So even so, come, Lord Jesus. We ask it in your holy name. Amen.